Hey guys, it's Grower Mike Panna, the Binding Warrior Podcast. It's your Warrior Wednesday interview. Uh, in today's episode, I'm really excited because I got a guy I've known for quite some time. Um, he's a gentleman that I've known for over a decade now. Um, he and his wife, Jen, have been training in Binding Warrior Martial Arts and Atienza Kali with us uh, for the last decade or so. Um, his name is Dante Paredes, a.k.a. Guru Dante, a.k.a. Dr. Dante. Um, he is a medical professional doctor here in the state of Texas. And I wanted to sit down with him to get some information regarding this current COVID-19 crisis. Even though we're kind of in this nice, you know, kind of this lull uh, and that our economy here in Texas is kind of getting back up to normal, some kind of normal. Um, I do have a lot of questions about this virus, including, you know, what a second wave could potentially look like. Uh, do masks even work? Uh, as well as certain steps and anything that we can do in our personal lives to make sure that our bodies are healthy to fight off this virus. Okay, so I think you guys are going to really find this interview with Dr. Dante very, very educational and very, very informative. Uh, we go into a ton of different topics regarding this situation. And now before we begin, I want to make sure that I put out this disclaimer. There is a little bit of static in the first 10 minutes of this interview, but I guarantee if you just stick around and you work through that, you're going to love what Dr. Dante has to say. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dante Paredes. Dr. Dante, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. All right. So I just want to make sure the audience gets a chance to know you um, and maybe you can just give them a little background about who you are, you know, where you're from and what you're doing right now. Sure thing. So right now I'm a practicing physician, family medicine, and osteopathic neuromuscular medicine, working over at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth. I started working there in the past two years, mostly uh, taking care of a combination of um, relatively high-performance individuals, as well as general population chronic metabolic disease. Prior to that, I was actually uh, a resident of New Jersey. I did my medical training there, as well as actually met you there uh, back during college uh, doing Filipino martial arts really since 2009. I think we've known each other for about 11 years now. And as basic as it is, that actually sums up the majority of my, of my life at this point. I do medicine. I hit things. <laughs> that's, why we, that's exactly why we want you on this podcast, <laughs> Quick stuff, uh, which works out perfectly. Uh, so got I it. want to uh, touch base regarding... Basically, we're going to break down a lot of different medical uh, questions uh, that I know some of the listeners may have, specifically as it pertains to COVID-19, especially, you know, with this pandemic here in the state of Texas is kind of dipping down a little bit. I know there's certain states like our home state of New Jersey. They're, they're now in the phase one, I believe, of reopening. Um, so right now we're kind of on this nice downward slump from the virus. It seems it, to the point where we can actually uh, reopen businesses to some degree. Um, right. right now, the biggest concern I think that a lot of us have is, one, we still don't know a lot about this disease. So maybe you can shed some light on that, like what exactly it does, what it is. And two, I'd like you to t hopefully talk about and possibly talk about the second wave and what that may look like. When do you think that'll happen and what we can do to prepare for it now? Sounds reasonable. And that's that's going to be a mouthful. So let's start with what this this virus is and what hopefully it isn't. So a lot of folks are hearing the term coronavirus for the first time, but I want it to be very clear that uh, coronavirus itself isn't necessarily a specific pathogen. It's, it's a whole class. In fact, um, the vast majority of us have been exposed to coronavirus at some point or another up until this time, but it was of a different, uh, different type. For example, the common cold that many of us get about somewhere between 20 and 40% of those cases are actually coronavirus cases as well. Likewise, um, if we think back, I think it was 2006 during the 
SARS epidemic that was occurring. That was also coronavirus. At the same time, there's that other pathogen that really hasn't made any landfall in the United States, the, um, the MERS virus, the, the version of this that's going on in the Middle East. These are all called coronavirus. What's going on here is there's specifically this thing called what? SARS-CoV-19, which is this new strain, which honestly we haven't witnessed before. It's a part of that family. And as a new strain, we're still kind of trying to get a sense of what it is and what it doesn't do. Um, the way a human body responds to any of these viral pathogens is relatively uniform. We develop what the cough, the fever, the chills, variations therein, common cold symptoms, but it tends to be a matter of degree and intensity, um, as well as how easy it is to transmit the infection. For example, the, um, the MERS virus, the, uh, the version of this that's going on in the Middle East, is actually a much more frightening uh, particle as far as how lethal it is, right? However, because of its mode of spread, because of its pathogenicity, that's just the way of saying how easy it is for it to infect other people, it doesn't seem to be as big of a threat because it's so localized versus, let's say, um, the SARS virus, right? Back in 2006, what would happen is you would be sick and you would spread, but because you were sick as you were spreading, we can kind of track that better. The strange thing about the coronavirus strain that we're working on, that we're fighting right now, is that there's such a long latency between when you're infected and when you're symptomatic, right? We talk about that 14-week um, lead time before you show any symptoms, potentially. And based on the new data that I was tracking yesterday, it looks like it's closer to 11 days. But still, that's a week and a half of you potentially carrying uh, pathogens without even having the hint of a symptom. Um, and that's kind of what's the weird thing about this. But minus that detail, this isn't that different from any of the other viral particles we've had to deal with in the past. Does that make sense so far? No, 100%. And so I agree. that's good that you shed light on it. I think there's a lot of people who are not aware of what you just said. So that really clarifies a lot. Now, the biggest thing I think that our listeners, and I know myself and my wife, we were discussing this recently, you know, what are we looking at in terms of a second wave? I think- okay. Yeah, that, that's that. I think that that is one of the things that a lot of people are concerned about. So maybe you could touch some base on that. Okay. So this is going to be an honest but relatively disappointing answer. The real answer is it's going to depend. Um, the good news is it partially depends on how we respond. So there's some account, there's some control we can take over it. But by and large, it's a function of this thing's biology. For example, at this time, we do not know necessarily. Uh, I guess the seasonal cycles of this thing, if it even has one, right? We talk about uh, the influenza virus to make a point of contrast. We know that that thing comes in the seasonal wave beginning around what? E about September, October. We know it starts to surge up in the United States then somewhere around February, uh, March, April, depending on what part of the country you live in, it begins to taper off and then cycles back and forth, right? Coronavirus doesn't seem to have that pattern, at least not that we know of yet. There's been some noise that, oh, maybe this thing is heat dependent. Maybe the, maybe the sun will cook it off or something like that. And we can hope for that. But as of at least yesterday, when I was trying to crawl through the literature, we don't ev have any strong evidence to say that that's the case. And that's not to say we don't think it's going to happen. It's a sincere, we do not know. Does that make sense? So that's one of the big variables. The other big variable is actually uh, human movement and population stuff. So, for example, if we 
lift all the restrictions and all of a sudden we're all together again, hanging out, doing our thing as if this never happened because we concentrate ourselves in a fashion that is identical to what caused the pandemic in the first place. We're going to have a second wave right then and there just because of what we did. Does that make sense? Right. Okay. Now, somewhere between that, right? Somewhere between the biology and the human behavior, we're going to get pockets and waves. It's just a matter of how they interact. Most likely what's going to happen is because all the states are functioning somewhat on their own at this point, the second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever wave phenomenons are going to be relatively local events. I say relatively in the context that they're not going to be massive, uh, maybe international, national level things. But you can imagine kind of like, like you get an earthquake, right? And then after the earthquake, there's the tremors. But the tremors are a function of the individual fault lines, not the giant crack that happened in the first place. This is going to be a lot more like that. Um, speaking in regards to Texas specifically, Dallas and Tarrant County seem to be doing relatively well. Specific reasons, I'll be honest, I have no idea. However, there's uh, evidence to say that Houston may need to be concerned in June because it looks like with the way humans are maneuvering in Houston uh, and, their relative, and their surrounding suburbs, they might actually develop a second wave phenomenon before the rest of us uh, over here in North Texas. Is it just is it just because of the way they're like the way the environment is there that they're densely populated? They are the the most populated city in the state of Texas. So is is it an issue of like population size, or is it just what what do you think is contributing to that for Houston? I think part of it has to be the population um, population thing. We what we're in phase two of reopening our economy, and look, cabin cabin fever is a thing, and. We opened up the doors, hooray, welcome back to, um, to business and whatnot. But there's a difference between what you should and can do, right? Can and should aren't the same thing necessarily. Right. Uh, I spend an inordinate amount of time on Reddit, actually, uh, partially because it lets me see what people are posting, right? Just to kind of monitor. I don't use it as a primary news source, but if there's a thousand videos on like Reddit of people acting a fool in Houston, that's data that's worth consideration, right? And it looks like uh, what ended up happening is since opening up the doors, certain towns, uh, certain cities, I should say, have been a lot more, let's say, lax or a lot more, honestly, lax is probably the best word for it, a lot more lax about how they've been reintroducing uh, human behaviors. For example, this is not the time to be jumping in, into like a giant pool that's stuffed full of people, right? This is not the time for that type of stuff. But if that's happening, then we're going to have a problem. And for reasons that I have no idea of, it looks like Houston, or at least there's videos of folks in Houston kind of partying on like nothing's happening. I don't know why. I'm not going to pretend to know why or assign blame. However, that's what's out there. The other part seems to do with uh, potential medical supply issues. Again, this is something that we're still trying to get a full uh, idea of. Some of the projections suggest that Houston may not have enough supplies to handle a spike. And the question becomes, what happens then if a spike occurs? If a spike occurs while Houston is down on supplies, then what ends up happening is it'll be that much harder to contain the disease process in that region, therefore leading to a wave. However, if uh, they have enough material supplies, hospital beds, and so on and so forth to contain whatever's happening, then that wave gets diminished. They self-quarantine in the way that we've been doing as a group anyway. Now, what can we do now? We're kind of in what I would believe is kind of the equivalent of our February, January, February, where we're kind of in the, the, the virus hasn't really hit yet. 
right? In a sense, right? It's hit, it's here, but right now because of this downward slump that we're in, we're kind of in this nice little gap where we can kind of get back to a little bit of normalcy. What can we do now to prepare for that second wave? Is it just a redo of what we did back in March or is it more, is, is there something else that we need to expect? You know, is there something else that you foresee happening in terms of, you know, trying to plan for, you know, perhaps getting groceries or supplies? What do you foresee happening and Understood. what would you think we could do to uh, prepare for that second wave? Okay. So th- there's, um, there's a couple broad layers to lay out for that one um, at the individual level will be, will be where I should start. So like when I was talking about the Houston uh, scenario, there's a difference between what you can do and what you should, what you should do because we opened up uh, the economy to some degree, that's going to take out some of the strain on our, you know, on our economy, which is by all means important. However, that does not mean that we opened up the gates because of public safety. So if you do not need to be in a, um, in a crowded public setting, if you do not need to be out there in the way that you would have prior to all this, this is actually still a good time to, to lay low. We don't have to go full hermit um, unless there's significant uh, risk factors, elder age, uh, comorbidities such as diabetes, so on and so forth. If you're otherwise of the healthy population, appropriate caution would be uh, the watchword more so than full on lockdown. Um, and that's really based on the idea that if we do nothing, right, if we do absolutely nothing, keep everything sh- shut, keep everything closed down, yes, we'll absolutely lower the rate of spread. However, at the same time, um, and this is something I'm seeing in my uh, clinical environment, the non-COVID related strains are starting to add up in a way that's also worth consideration. For example, I have a handful of scenarios where folks do not have access to either a roof or water uh, because all the public services are kind of strained. So because they don't have access to clean water, what do they do? All right, the economy is a little bit open now. Now they can go places. Now they get some water, basic things like water. And now they don't have to worry about them having dehydration pathologies in the middle of Texas summer. But again, that's a very uh, select scenario. At the individual level, the best thing to do is to you know lay low, keep wearing your masks. You can hang with people, but avoid large gatherings. There's um, two docs who were uh, actually conducting an interview very similar to this over from uh, Dallas side, actually. And they were talking about how even they themselves are starting to begin to hang out again in small groups. But what they're doing is they're doing everything outside in the backyard. So instead of, let's say, something close quarters, like in a living room or like a dinner party, you know, they'll set up some lawn chairs or whatever, hang out in the backyard, keep some distance, hang out and go from there, which is a lot more sustainable from a sanity perspective. At the broader level, um, one of the big things to consider is how much do we want to stimulate economy versus how much do we want to keep protecting each other? Uh, This goes into a mask conversation. Because we are in an environment now where we're going to be interacting with more people more often, right? That means that the protection of yourself to others and vice versa becomes that much more important. Like you don't need to wear a mask if you're in your car. Like if you're the only person in your vehicle, what's the point, right? But if now you're hanging out with maybe six, seven, eight plus people at a given time, now it becomes much more important. If masks weren't part of your daily behaviors prior, this is actually the right time for that. Does that make sense now? 100%. And actually, it's good that you spoke about the mask thing because we're seeing a lot of stuff on social media. I'm seeing a lot of stuff on the mainstream news even 
discussing, you know, are masks important? Should we wear them? You know, or do they actually work? I'm going to say yes. Yeah, right. Exactly. I know you're going to say that. I know we, you and I have spoken about this in private conversations, especially as we come back into our martial arts classes at Mining Warrior Martial Arts. We've, you know, I've consulted you and a number of the other guys in the group who are medically trained. You know, should we wear masks? But I kind of want you to go into detail as to why you believe masks are still important. And also, one thing I would like to ask is, you know, I've read that if it's not an N95 mask, it's basically useless. Is there validity to that, or can we wear basically any kind of mask as long as we all have one? That sounds thing. Sounds good. Um, hold on, there was a lot there. What was the part one of the question again? So bas- basically, just to repeat it, uh, one, you know, um, are masks important? Should we wear them? I know you said yes to that, but if you can go into detail with that. And the, second, the second part is, it, does it have to be an N95, or can it be any type of mask in general? Or do we have to stick with an N95 or a respirator? Cool. So I'm actually going to do this in reverse then. Um, so the various masks are made to various demands, right? So a surgical mask versus a cloth mask versus an N95. And for the purposes that we're interested in, right? For the idea of you containing whatever particles you have in your system and preventing it from aerosolizing and spreading out into the environment. At this point, any mask is better than no mask. Now it becomes a question of degree of efficiency. So the, um, the N95 respirator masks, assuming they're well fit, are extremely efficient at both keeping particles out, right? Keeping you from inhaling things that are not what you want. At the same time, they're extremely good at keeping what you have exhaling in, which means if you have bad breath, you're going to be very self-aware of this. That's actually a good thing because that means that the air is being trapped more or less inside. That's what you want. That's the point. If we downgrade to a surgical mask, right, the, uh, the relatively loose ones with the, with the blue and the white uh, design for the most part, Similarly, they're very good at keeping what you have inside you, but they don't do as good of a job filtering out what's coming in from the outside because they have, um, there's just air leaks on the sides and on the bottom of them. What that means is even though you may have something, you'll prevent spread. On the other side, if the outside has something, you'll still probably take some particle in. You'll t- it'll still exchange airflow efficiently, but not as much as if you didn't wear a mask, period. Now, taking a step down from that, we have the various cloth masks. And the interesting thing about cloth masks is because that's this really weird industry that's just evolved in the past month, the quality of those things are all over the place. I've seen some that look like trash. Like um, there's this one that was getting some publication. It quite literally has a hole in the front for you to put a straw through. That's going to be useless. At the same time, I've seen some of the cloth masks that are purported to be uh, using uh, HEPA filters, if you're familiar with the term, H-E-P-A. Uh, it's the material we use for our um, air filters for housing, like HVAC type of stuff. There's actually um, some literature suggesting that if you take the, the uh, HEPA filters, the HEPA filters, and you cut a little square out of them and you place them in your mask, that performs almost as good as an N95 fitted. So some of the cloth masks out there are actually starting to put that in their own design so those masks are actually good to go. But now we're talking about very brand-specific considerations. If we go below cloth masks and, you know, you have a bandana, I guess, the bandana might not do you good. Don't waste your time. You look like a goon and it doesn't really help. And then below that, we're talking about basically wearing nothing. And at that point, not only do you have no protection from the outside whatsoever, but at the same time, everything you breathe out is completely unfiltered as well. One of the key considerations is this is there's two roles to wearing the masks. And 
folks get really twisted if they only consider one. Roll one of the masks, and this is more for the high end, the N95s and so on and so forth, is to keep what's going on outside in. Only the HEPA and the N95 masks can really accomplish that effectively. So at the individual level, you want something like that. However, at the population level, the more people wear masks, the lower the um, viral, the lower the pathogen burden is going to be in the environment because at some point you're going to breathe something in and at some point it's going to replicate and at some point you're going to exhale it out into the environment. But if everybody's wearing a mask, then what ends up happening is the amount of particle exhaled into the environment gets diminished so significantly that it approaches negligible. Does that make sense? No, 100%. I think that's a big point of contention. There's this huge, uh, there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of controversy regarding the validity of masks. And, you know, I really appreciate your your take on that and the science that you're bringing to that. And, you know, I think right now we have to really heed that. Uh, you know, I'm not a medical professional as you are, but, you know, I, I try to listen to <laughs> your guys like yourself. Appreciate it. Yeah, I, I think it's really important that we, especially in a, in a field like us where we're actually moving around and, you know, we're training all the time and we're, you know, we're breathing pretty decently. You know, we want to make sure that we're protecting ourselves. So one of the concerns I know that a lot of people with the mass, and I've actually had this concern myself. I believe I asked you this uh, in a separate text. But um, as we go back into our martial arts and fitness training in the group setting, that we're you know, even if it's a small group setting, I think the mm-hmm. biggest concern that people are having is the fact that they believe that they're they're breathing either too much CO two with the mask on, it's it's damaging their lungs somehow, or um, they're not because they're not able to get the oxygen that they need as a, as opposed to when they wouldn't have the mask at all they are putting themselves at some kind of risk, breathing deeply, inhaling, exhaling vigorously during exercise with a mask on. What's your take on that? So um, there's less good data on this. So I'm going to have to switch gears. I want to be very clear when I'm speaking data-driven versus, um, you know, anecdotally. So what I'm saying from here is going to be more from the anecdotal side, just so that disclaimer is kind of out there. I've had to wear the N95 masks for 12 plus hours at a time, running around taking care of patients. And I will admit that it's extremely uncomfortable. I don't enjoy wearing it. You know what I mean? I can, I can feel a little bit of work and labor when I'm uh, running around doing my procedures and whatnot. However, uh, at no point have I felt so strained by that system that I had to remove it. Does that make sense? Right. At the same time, uh, just as a proof of concept, one of, um, one of our guys, actually, it's one of our guys. It's uh, Dr. Rostomian. I can say doctor now because he just graduated. Right on. He, uh, he actually made the effort to rock one of those masks and go for a long hike just to see if he could. And he could. And, you know, he's an athletic individual, but as a, proof of, as a, as a test of concept, um, even though there was meaningful strain, it was not sufficient to stop athletic activity, at least for a sample size of him and me. When I look at the specific cases of those folks who dropped, um, while wearing that masks, a couple things, a couple confounders were there that need to be addressed. But again, the data isn't out there to make this go beyond a suggestion. It looks like the folks who have problems, right? When, when they're trying to do athletic activities while wearing the masks are those persons who already have underlying mechanical and or respiratory issues. For example, if you have asthma and that asthma is exercise induced, wearing a mask is going to strain that system. Likewise, if you have uh, something called COPD, it's a type of disease where if you smoke to a point where your lungs lose their elasticity, they, they become like loose bags, like, uh, like shopping bags, kind of. If you have pathologies like that, these masks will definitely put a strain on the system. 
which makes training a little bit harder. But for the average athlete, since we're dealing with the training population, the amount of strain that this mask would cause, I would be relatively confused and impressed if it caused strain sufficient to stop training. The implication, let's say we take one of our athletes and they put on one of the, let's say an N95 mask, they train and they're starting to get gassed like hard. The underlying implication is they might actually have some meaningful medical pathology that needs to be worked up because why is that happening? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. So assuming adequate health, assuming average health uh, appropriate for the, uh, physical training, it will put a strain on the system, but it should not by any means be enough to stop training altogether. If it does, just take off the mask and take a break. Does that make sense? hundred percent. And, you know, what, that you put that, that perspective, especially in myself as a person who works out and, you know, obviously our, our people are pretty athletic overall. You know, that is, I think, a really good uh, explanation, what you just put out there of what these masks are really for and that they really shouldn't affect you all that much. So I really, right. I really appreciate you putting that out. Now, the other thing that I'd like to address, and this is something that I've asked myself and, you know, I know a lot of my listeners may be asking themselves this as well. It seems to us, it seems to me anyway, the, the studies that are being shown about COVID and the deaths from COVID and even the people who are getting affected, it's a very, very small number of the population. I think the question a lot of the listeners may have at this point is like, okay, we now kind of have an idea of what it really is and what separates it from other viruses. And now the whole mask issue, we've kind of debunked that. Now, how do we go into, you know, how should, how serious should we take this virus? Because it seems that the, there are deaths, there's a lot of people getting this virus, but it seems that it's a very small number of people who are actually dying from this virus, the very small people, amount of people who are actually getting this virus. So how seriously, as we go into this second wave, potential second wave, as we're in this kind of downward slump and getting our economy back going again, how serious should we take this virus? Do you okay. really, do you, do you, in your professional opinion, do you, do you think it's important for us to take this virus uh, as seriously as we've been taking it? So I want to actually separate out a couple ideas for that question, because as, as excellent and important as it is, there's a couple of built-in assumptions that need to be teased out. There's taking a thing seriously, and then there's doing the right thing, right? You can have all of the intent in the world, but if your tactic is wrong, then hooray for you. You willingly went into the wrong move, right? As far as how serious to take this thing, we're not going to know how deadly this thing is at the end of the day until you and I are both much older and we're looking back at this in the history books. The very first wave of the Spanish flu that was present during the early 20th century didn't look that bad on its first hit, didn't look that bad in its second hit. And then three, four, five later, it's, you know, the thing that killed the most people in World War I more than any of the actual combat. But there's no way to know that when we're in the middle of it, when we're in the thick of it, right? As far as how serious it is, given the potential of what it is and the various unknowns, as well as the potential lethality of its similar viruses, I think it's worth taking this thing quite seriously. I really do. Not a lot of folks are dying from this, but it's still way more than, let's say, what the common cold is. And depending on our data source and the specifics of the population, it is either as deadly as the flu or maybe double as deadly as the flu. And then people think, oh, it's the flu, whatever, it's a death. But at the same time, that's a death that's very easily preventable if we just lowered the disease burden. So it, it, it warrants respect. It warrants us to keep our eyes on it. Now, the other side is 
okay, fine, we take it seriously. Does that mean we need to lock down, shut down all operations? And that's kind of where things get kind of tricky. So I remember when we first initiated the, uh, the national pandemic uh, thing, right? When Trump made that announcement. And what ended up happening was, honestly, on the doctor side, on the medical side, we were pretty happy about it because uh, what didn't really make it through, or I, I don't know, it actually gets to the media at this point, but prior to that executive order, whatever thing being called, it says that this is a national crisis. That was actually a move that the medical side, the science side, was trying to push for almost about maybe two, three weeks prior. And there was resistance to it for all the things that we're talking about now. And then finally, uh, the uh, federal government was convinced. Then they pulled the trigger and then decided to lock everything down. Now, the lockdown did its job. It lowered the that first big hump, right? And now we're going to deal with all these secondary humps and trickles and, and waves. That's what we're calling them now, right? However, we don't necessarily know what the best way is to continue the social distancing, the lockdown, and balance that against the other demands. It's this weird situation where because we're kind of a gigantic country and we function almost like 11 different countries in the first place, these might be decisions that have to be made at the level of um, stateside or maybe a few states at a time relative to each other as opposed to big national things because the economy of, actually, let's look at it like this. The Northeast right now, the coronavirus phenomenon is completely different from the phenomenon that we're dealing with over in Texas, right? So, when, yeah, so the way that New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania has to handle the situation appropriately, tactically needs to be different from how we're dealing with it in Texas, Colorado, New Mexico, so on and so forth. Is the virus the same? Yes. Is the lethality of the virus probably the same? Most likely, yes. However, because of the disease burden, the strains on that system, their version of taking it seriously is going to look very different from our version of taking it seriously. Does that make sense now? Right. This is where it gets hard to talk about because, you know, we're talking about statecraft decisions now. And uh, uh, what's the line from Star Trek? I'm a doctor. <laughs> right. hundred percent. And so, again, like you're saying, like what we're seeing here, say in Dallas, in, over in Dallas County. They're seeing it differently in Denton County. Exactly. And that's the same. That's the same region. I mean, we're all in the same area, right? Like, it's the people of over in Fort Worth are seeing it different than the people in, you know, you know, Wichita Falls or maybe Houston. Like, so even though we're all in the same state, the the disease seems to the virus anyway seems to be differentiating in the way it's affecting the local populace. Exactly. So that's that's important to I think people need to understand. Now, I think the big question, especially Texans, I know would have this question. My wife and I were just actually having this discussion at breakfast this morning. Um, he, the issue of heat, intense heat, and how it affects this virus. Is it true in your professional opinion? Do you think it's true that intense heat, like the one that we're about to see here in Texas in the summertime, can mitigate and destroy this disease, at least limit its, its spread um, in the months to come as we enter summer? So this is where, this is where it's going to get a little bit tangled again. As far as we know, there is no evidence to suggest that this virus is heat sensitive, at least not within temperatures that are typical to the human experience. Um, that doesn't imply that it won't happen, because for all we know, it could. But we sincerely have no idea. Um, I do believe there are some trials, some, some research going on to see if that is the case. But even then, uh, the idea that viruses are heat sensitive comes from the idea that the flu moves with the seasons. And the idea back then was that the flu virus was heat sensitive as well. And turns out it, it actually isn't. 
the reason that the flu virus has its seasonal waves is actually due to a completely different mechanism, which I'll be honest, I forget because it's been a minute, but that mechanism is completely heat independent. Does that make sense? So it's a, it's a journey when we have no idea. As far as reducing the spread of virus, what's going to really confound the data, and at that point, we have to question whether or not this data even matters anymore, is when it gets this hot in Texas, nobody's outside anyway. So for, right. And that's a yeah. real confounder, right? From a research standpoint, if the population initiates different behaviors, right, if that variable can't be accounted for, then we can't really evaluate accurately what the resultant variable is going to be, right? If everybody is going out less and doing less stuff because it's 120 degrees and it's hot on concrete, that's going to reduce spread in and of itself. How do we tease out how much of that is heat sensitive versus human behavioral because of social distancing because it's hot outside? And the real answer is we might, ever, we might never actually know uh, how effective it's going to be at the level of uh, clinical population stuff because of that confounder. However, I would hope that at some point we at least find out whether or not this thing can be, you know, burned alive at 110 degrees because that's something we can figure out. We just don't have that data yet. Right. And hopefully that is the case. And, you know, there's a lot of people talking about, you know, the, obviously the heat thing. And as we're kind of winding down toward the end of this interview. I know you got things to do, but I do want to ask now that we have all this information, uh, you know, you're a fitness minded guy. I'm a fitness minded guy. We're very health and fitness oriented in our group. How can, what can we do from a personal health standpoint? Of course, we know about the mass and washing your hands, but from taking care of ourselves, uh, what kind of exercise we should do? What do you think we can do now from a fitness and uh, health perspective to strengthen our bodies, to better handle this particular virus or any virus that may come our way? Got it. So right now there are two different versions, uh, two different working models of how this, this, how this virus operates. Um, and depending on which version is right, and for all we know, it could be both, that actually determines how this answer works. So I'm going to present the two potential versions of the thing we're dealing with, as well as the potential recommendations based on which one is going on. So there's an unknown here, and there's two variables, and I'm going to lay out the two variables just to make that very clear. Version number one is that this is primary, primarily a respiratory illness, similar to influenza, cold virus, and so on and so forth, rhinovirus, I mean, in which case it's a disease process that attacks the lungs. Um, if that's the case, then the two primary maneuvers we have are oxygen support and anti-inflammatory maneuvers. Now, the data on what you can do for yourself as far as anti-inflammatory is a little bit all over the place. Um, this is not to throw shade at Joe Rogan because his show is amazing, but there was some argument about like, can I use a sauna to help with coronavirus because of the anti-inflammatory effect? And uh, to the best of our knowledge, it seems to be as a concept completely ineffective. Um, as far as the inflammatory aspect, we might not have much to offer at this point, and that's frustrating, but at the same time, it's as honest as I can be with it. What we might have some control over is the capacity for our lungs to handle. For example, there's this idea that of, a, of a maximum amount of oxygen that your body can take in, right? The size of your lungs, how much air they can draw. If this is a pathology that limits your ability to draw air, then the better you are at extracting what oxygen you can from the air you get, the better you're off you're going to be, right? If you can only take in 10% of the oxygen from what you intake, that puts you in one situation. What if you can extract 30, 40, 50? Does that make sense? Right. That variable is primarily controlled by cardiovascular exercise. So as much as I love to deadlift and hit things heavy, um, this is one of those situations where 
if you're engaging in moderate to intense activity, that means something that's repetitive and um, stressful enough that you cannot maintain a conversation, but not so stressful enough that you're gassing, that makes your body more prone to extracting better oxygen, which means that if you're in a situation where you can't get good air, you'll get the best you can out of the air you get. So cardio is actually the primary for this one for once, because you've, you've known me long enough to know that I'm not really a big cardio guy. This is actually the time for relatively intense cardio. Um, and that's if this is the pulmonary version. Now on the other side, there is some evidence uh, and admittedly it's theoretical evidence coming from some of the Chinese literature suggesting that this might actually be a hematological disease as in the bloodborne disease. That's kind of where some of this hydroxychloroquine and all those ideas are coming out of. If this is primarily a blood disease that happens to make you hypoxic as opposed to a lung disease where you can't pull air, then unfortunately there isn't actually much we can offer from a, um, from a, a fitness standpoint because if it's truly a blood disease, then we need something that can fight at the level of blood and that's where our pharmacologics come in. Taking that all into consideration, there's two versions of this disease that we're messing with as far as mechanism. Version one, we have some power over. Version two, we honestly are dependent on the pharmacology. What the implication of that is, is our best bet is most likely going to be acting as if it's the, the, the respiratory version at the in level of uh, individual, right? As in hop on a bike and train. And then we have to trust the medical side to prepare us if it's the hematologic, because that's something that's, unless you're the one actually making the drugs, it's even out of my hands. Does that make sense? Right. So cardio, G grab some bells, grab a bike, go for a run, swing some sticks. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. That sounds like the formula I've been running lately as well. So, okay. So now that we're winding down, I appreciate you again, Guru Dante, Dr. Dante coming to the podcast and answering all these questions. And I want to make sure that people can learn more about you. So you, you mentioned, uh, you know, all these awesome resources and all these things that you've, you've studied about. Are there any resources that you recommend that we can look at? aside from maybe the CDC website, are there any things that you could recommend to us? And also, how can we learn more about you and how can we follow you? Okay. So as far as getting resources for, for COVID things, there's, there's a couple ways to go about this one. If you're looking for the most accurate information on what's going on at the basic science level, right? What does this disease do? What's our processes and all that type of stuff? As of at least yesterday, the CDC is actually doing a pretty good job. So from a raw basic science standpoint, if you go to the CDC's guideline recommendations and go to the bottom, the part that nobody reads, they tend to at least link to the resources and references. And then you can run down that rabbit hole as deep as you want uh, by starting at CDC, go to their links as far as what, what actual research has made them get to that guideline and then just chase it and do what you will. If you're looking for how to respond to the virus, if you're looking for more like how are people acting around it, that's actually when you should tend to look away from the medical because we're really good at doing medical things. We're not really good at looking at other things. Um, and your local media, your local news is probably the best starting point just to get a sense of what people are doing. I've made allusions earlier that um, I'm actually using Reddit for that purpose because look, um, they're not scientists necessarily. And it's, you know, the, uh, you know, the word of the, the demagogue type of idea. But if a bunch of folks are posting things at the very least, it gives me a lead to chase. And then unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your skill set, it's up to you to vet that lead. But at least you'll have leads as opposed to kind of floundering around Google. I say this because Google right now has been more useless than not. It's really good for tracking. It's really good for 
getting you linked to some of the basic science, but because of how the Google algorithm works, this is no harm on that thing. It's not really designed to help you understand what's happening locally, um, unless it's something that's newsworthy enough to become bigger. Does that make sense? Right. As far as how to get a hold of me or how to find out more about me, I mean, I do have a podcast. Um, so I guess this is where I plug that. Um, Go for it. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> Just set it sure up for thing, you. Sure thing. <laughs> um, my colleague and I, uh, Dr. James Aston, run a podcast. It's called Rolling Bones. It's, well, at when we first made it, it was the only osteopathic podcast out there. But since then, things have grown nicely. And now I can say we're the first because we have, you know, we have brothers in that world too now, which is kind of nice. Um, Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. What we do is we talk a lot about how to uh, take charge of your health in a very practical way. There's ideas that the body's capable of self-healing and self-regulation. And the way the basic sciences have evolved, it looks like that idea is more accurate than not. But then we have to take that idea and juxtapose that against, so why are we all sick? And what it amounts to is, we're not born with a field manual and humans are very complicated to the best of our ability. We're trying to teach you how your body operates so that you can take charge and hopefully never have to see me in the office. Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Dante Perez, AKA Guru Dante. Um, I really hope you guys learned a lot from it. I know I did take care. God bless and be the hero in your life.